Welcome to the Transapocalyptic Oasis show. I am Marshall Eon, and I'm joined here today by Lucas Edelon. Is that right? It is indeed. Lucas is the founder of the Warden Post. Co-founder. Co-founder. That is an honor I share with um, Alexander Graf von Norstal. Okay, he's a co-founder. And um, you're also the co-founder of the Meta Modern Right group. Is that right? Yes, uh, that was a group that I set up uh, a while back, trying to kind of bring people who uh, were maybe from like different, maybe they were from like traditionalist or rightist uh, perspectives, but also were more, let's say, sympathetic to like what we might call like futurism, right? They weren't like medievalists or, you know, what you see in like neo-pagan circles or like right-wing neo-pagan circles where, oh, you know, we just need to go back to like the return to monkey people. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but uh, no. Okay. Um, basically like. Oh, return to monkey. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But it's I like. I thought you meant return to monkey people. No, no, no. Um, but no, like my that group was kind of set up as a as a, an experiment right to see like okay well we can kind of let's let's try to fish for people who maybe are on the right or maybe they're you know right-leaning postmodern types or uh, integral types and let's just kind of bring some new blood to the the scene that isn't the same rehashing of like oh we gotta you know like revolt against the modern world and talk about how decadent everything and everyone is right um but yeah i mean it, it really is more of an excuse for just for me to just share my uh my uh taste in vaporwave music <laughs> to be honest at this point yeah i was gonna say uh seems like there's a strong emphasis on aesthetics there but i already have a bunch of questions so you identify as right, yes, right wing or rightist. Yes, I do. Okay, that which obviously makes you a Nazi. Oh, so what? <laughs> what kind of? Is, like, what's funny is like you know when people accuse me, and I have been accused of like, you know, I have been accused of being every like extreme part of every extremist ideology under the sun, right? Which is fine, you know. Just don't accuse me of being a moderate because then I'll be upset. A moderate. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's like I make this joke, right? It's like, you know, you're a, you're obviously just a, a crypto Nazi or something. It's like, no, no, no. You know, the Nazis um, were, you know, they thought that uh, post-impressionism was degenerate art. And I'm a big fan of post-impressionism. So, you know. <laughs> so you differ from the Nazis in your art taste, but that's it. No, no, no. It's, see, this is the thing. So hold on a sec. So you're, but you're, you identify as like a national socialist, right? Well, I don't, I wouldn't use that word because I feel like national socialism, I would use the word. You're a socialist nationalist. Yes. National (laughs) socialism. Like, okay, I, I, let me explain. Uh Use uh, national socialism is as it was manifested during uh, the, the third Reich was essentially an ideology of race-based totalitarianism, right? I'm much like, which, you know, like if you're a Nazi, you think that's great. Right. But I'm not like my, my whole thought process isn't trying to like create like a, you know, 
a, a, a race of Ubermensch types that are just going to go like steamroll the world or something. I don't like, but I, I, I've always been, I've always used the term maybe social nationalist or right-wing socialist or something like analogous to those terms. One, because I've always had a, had a immense distrust of capitalism. Like back in the day, I, I never went through what was called the, the libertarian to alt-right pipeline. Like even during my early 20s, like I was never like I, I, I never got into Rand or Rothbard or any of these other types. Like to me, like I, I just, you know, when I when I read these uh, critiques of capitalism and the the, you know, maybe the apologies for capitalism or free market economics, like it, it never rub me the right way it just seemed like everything comes down to like quantity and i knew that there were values that were above like the material which got me into my like my traditionalism you know um but yeah like i would describe myself as a, a social nationalist in the kind in the same vein as people uh maybe like um uh father coughlin or huey long in the american tradition um I, I also identify with like anti-imperialist groups. You know, I would actually be very uh, fond or um, I guess, you know, fond would be the right word of, you know, some aspects of the anti-colonial movement that took place in the global South. Um, I'm very much for the sovereignty of all peoples to pursue their own destinies. I'm not like a, a what might be called like a supremacist in like the chauvinistic sense. You know, I think every people uh, has the right to pursue their own destinies, to defend their own cultures. I think that is a, a God-given right to any, any people. Um, not just, you know, I mean, it, it's easy to kind of like emphasize what's going on in Europe because, you know, as someone who is on the right and someone who sees the situation happening in Europe, like, well, European cultures are under attack, but I also maintain that uh, there are certain, you know, let's call them uh, peoples outside of Europe who who are suffering just as much. Like I would be supportive of movements such as the liberation of Tibet or the uh, the Uyghurs in East Turkestan or um, or the Kurdish uh, people scattered around as they are in that kind of pocket in the Middle East. Um, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said. Like, I, I'm very much in favor of nationalism, however you want to define that. I'm very much in favor of uh, workers' sovereignty over their own labor. You know, I mean, I've, like, I, I hate that. What, what made me sour, I mean, but then, then again, here's the thing, is back in the day, I, I was a left-winger. I was something that could be, you know, I was very much inclined towards the classical industrial unionism of the, uh, the Wobblies, right? I, you know, the industrial workers of the world, the, ID, the uh, IWW. Um, I, I was very much a vocal supporter of people like Bernie Sanders back before he even ran, which is something I deeply regret now that, you know, he, he's, he strikes me. Like having seen him like uh, rabble rouse for certain causes and have him actually be a, 
run as a, a a candidate, a political candidate, it's like it was obvious to me that this guy is just kind of like a jellyfish of a man. Like anyway, my point being is I I've known that something was wrong with what we might call neoliberalism or global finance capitalism. These are okay. things that have always been, you know, heavily against. And I've seen the destructiveness of it, not just in terms of how they abuse people, uh, in terms of like, you know, Im imposing debt servitude and crushing poverty, but how they treat every race, culture, and ethnicity on the planet as just like these little modes of, uh, or um, uh, cause rather, of labor and capital that can be moved around willy-nilly without any regard of the local cultures or histories right. of different places. Like I, I I've always seen that as incredibly diabolical. Yeah. So I've that's got, like that's kind of a green critique. Oh yes. Are we gonna oh, we're gonna be using um I guess more of like the the integral spiral dynamic. We'll touch on that, you know. Okay, okay. It's a useful frame. So I already have a bunch of questions. So um, you said you were always suspicious of capitalism. Yes. You met, you had mentioned it to me before you were reading, uh, Julius Evola. Yes. Back in the day, Evola. So back in my early twenties, I, um, I was a stardent or I'm sorry, an ardent, um, anti-modernist. But even when growing up, I was always, I always had a love for the mythic, the heroic, the legendary. You know, I grew up reading stories from the Bible and stories from classical mythology, and um, I, I emulated that. You know, I tried to apply those values, however shallow I could actually, you know, embody them into my life. You know, like, I, I was always kind of nostalgic for maybe this time, whether it was, you know, lost in the 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 mists of, of primordial history where the gods or God you know dwelt personally with human beings and there were like these great stories of heroism and, and divinity right and you know growing up that kind of fueled a lot of my anti-modernist outlook uh, and um, it was around I think my early twenties uh, I, I had to have stumbled across uh, well no first actually my my gateway to the right, let's call it that, uh, was reading Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West in my sophomore year of high school. That was probably what set me on the course where I am now. Um, but after Spengler, I had come across the works of Julius Evola, who, if you even, even a cursory reading of the man's, you know, biography reveals that he was the anti-modernist par excellence, right? And I think uh, shortly after I had read, um, oh, actually, I'm sorry. I think it was around my, uh, when I was 21, I had picked up a copy of Revolt and, and came away thinking, this is what I believe and I've never been able to express it in words before. And I, I basically devoured every single book by Evola I could get my hands on. Um, he, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that Julius Evola, uh, for me, was something of a spiritual godfather for the most, for the majority of my early to mid twenties. 
And that also set me down a course where I really wanted to dive into the, the esoteric or the, the wisdom traditions of the world. Like I have read the, the holy books, the sacred liter- literature of essentially every major world religion, right? Sometimes uh, more than once, you know, like I read, I try to make it a point to read the, the, uh, the New Testament every Lent. But I've also read the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita multiple times. I've read uh, the Quran uh, once. I want to revisit it, uh, you know, eventually. The, the Tao Te Ching, the Analectics of Confucius. Like, I mean, if there is a, a major world religion with uh, a holy book, chances are I've read it. But, you know, I was really just caught up in this expectation well like i know there's there's what the traditionalists call the the uh, sophia perennis like the primordial wisdom of the world and i tried to you know by delving into these these books i wanted to really you know get at the heart of you know what brings man closer to the divine you know to the absolute to what is truly beyond being and, you know, it was around my studies of sacred literature, I, I came across the works of Rene Guénon, who um, could, and could be said to be the founder of the traditionalist school, you know, brilliant metaphysician. Um, his works are a little what bit- What was his name? Rene Guénon. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, brilliant metaphysician. His, his stuff comes off as far more academic than Evola's, which makes him a wee bit harder to read. Although that might just be a thing with French authors, I've, I've noticed. Um, but yeah, like throughout the course of my mid twenties, I I was enveloped in my search for the divine, right? And I I had been studying secular philosophy alongside of this. I think I was probably reading uh, Nietzsche alongside a, a bunch of other authors. Um, and I think roughly during that period, I had identified uh, religiously or spiritually as a pagan. Uh, for roughly three years, I think I dabbled in uh, true, which uh, for people who may not know what that is, it's, a, it's essentially the Nordic tradition or Nordic paganism, right? But that didn't really stick well with me. I, I never really agreed with polytheism, I guess. So after that, I began reading uh, the Neoplatonist works, like the Enneads of Plotinus, and that resonated with me far more. And after uh, Plotinus, I, I was introduced via Neoplatonism to the Eastern Church Fathers, I think specifically the Alexandrian Church Fathers. And... That got me interested in uh, Eastern Christianity or Greek Christianity. And I, uh, and granted, this was like during the, the years of like 2015 to 16, or before, I'm sorry, 20, before 2016. And this was when, you know, you saw like this traditionalist boom, I think, on social media. And Eastern Orthodoxy was a part of it. So I thought, you know what? Hey, I think there's an Eastern Orthodox church near where I live. Let me go check it out. And immediately I was caught up in it. Like I, I felt like this is where I need to be. 
although granted it was difficult and admittedly still is difficult for me to abandon some of my old pagan presuppositions about the world about human nature about anthropology um but for the most part uh i i mean i was received into the church i tried to adhere as well as possible to the teachings of the church and the lifestyle of the church and um during that phase i kind of got it's really well known in orthodox circles that you know newer converts have what's called uh convertitis right where they become like you know you have like these catechumens who you know they're learning about orthodoxy and they get so like fired up by it and they feel like oh we need to just kind of root out these modernist influences <laughs> and all this other stuff and i was a part of it admittedly and some of my earlier works for the warden post were um were you know internet crusade in nature However, this got me into a debacle online with uh, a few priests, actually. And I, I was really, I, I was really like, I was up on my high horsey, let me put it like that. I thought, oh, well, you know, if, if the priests aren't going to, you know, keep to the, the, the letter and the word of holy tradition, then they need to be called out and so on and so forth. And uh, I got to the point where my, my, uh, oh, and I was also, this was also uh, the time where I was still more or less involved in more hard right circles, right? And I had made, uh, uh, now since deleted comment, <laughs> on my, my former account uh, that, that caught the, the, the ire of my godfather. Who reported it to the local parish priests and I basically had to sit down with two priests and the parish president and explain to them in front of my girlfriend for like two hours how I was not the second coming of Matthew Heimbach. I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. And you know if I was not convinced as I was about like the reality of like the divine and the, the demonic. So they thought you were a neo-Nazi. Yes. Yes. And it was, it was bad. It was, it, I have never been so steamed. I mean, I'm over it now. I understand what my godfather was doing was in good faith. Uh, it was, you know, chastisement for the sake of my betterment, whatever. But again, whatever. if I was not as concerned as I am, or, you know, yeah. If I wasn't as like, sure about like the existence of the divine and the demonic and all this stuff of, of, you know, of the transcendent, I think I would have apostatized or I would have maybe even, yeah, I would have apostatized, but I got through it, but it did, the, the whole experience left me thinking something. And so in orthodoxy in particular, it's very common that you have people who are on the right or who are radical traditionalists because they're disgusted with the modern world or everything that modernity implies. But this experience got me thinking, if the church is only willing to stand up against modernism when it's issues of maybe like abortion or, oh Lord, like 
prayer in schools or some other, you know, nonsense that I'm, I'm just kind of like, I think is more or less derived from like a kind of like a bourgeoisie ethos, right? Like if you're, if they're not willing to kind of like throw down the gauntlet and say no to like serious issues, then, you know, why should religion be like the thing we kind of rally around in the face of like subversion, right? And I mean, I, I say subversion, but you know, like the bad things, like the bad things that are going on. Like I'm sure everyone who's watching this or who will watch it has like their own idea of the crisis that's facing the postmodern world. And they can interpret that however they wish, which is why I'm using like a kind of neutral term. But it, again, it got me thinking and it's like, well, if, if, the, if the most hard line traditionalist denomination of Christianity is not willing to be the, the standard bearer for uh, a true revolt against the modern world, then what good is it? What good is sacred tradition? What good is perennial wisdom in the face of all of this, right? And that turned me on to more political forms of thinking. Um, that got me into the thinking of the political work of Carl Schmitt, who famous, famous legal theorist, right? His study, actually his works have been revived uh, recently because they've caught the attention of, of the Chinese government and how they conduct their foreign policy. What's his name? Carl Schmitt. Schmitt? Yeah. He has the uh, the the infamous reputation of being the um, the the chief legal theorist of the Third Reich, but right. he kind of falls into another the, Nazi. Yeah, but it's like <clears throat> kind of falls into the same category as like a Martin Heidegger, where it's like they kind of went along with it because if they didn't, well, you get you know you get thrown in the naughty camps, or you lose your job and your credibility. So if they wanted to keep their, their academic status as university professors, then you kind of had to toe the party line, so to speak. And, but still, you know, for whatever sins Carl might have committed, his works are, without a doubt, uh, brilliant. In fact, the concept of the political alone, I think, is the masterwork of all political science. And I would, I would swear by that. It's less than 100 pages long, and I think no other uh, book on political science or political theory has come close to... The concept of the political. Yeah. It's, it's a work of pure genius in my, my... But, you know, getting into... Leaving, leaving behind religionism, if you want to call it that. Like, and I say, like, religionism as kind of like the devotional aspect of um, a spiritual tradition and getting into the more like, okay, well, we, if, if traditionalism isn't the answer, what is? And it eventually set me on this long course, which I'm still on, I'm still traveling, of, uh, well, if the postmodern world isn't going, or if, Modernity, rather, if modernity in itself is changing and it's not going away, if it's just going to mutate into something different, wouldn't it be better for people who are on the right or who are part of dissident circles more generally 
to kind of work with the trends that are coming than be reactionaries in the worst sense of the word, to be mere anachronists or archaists and just say, oh, well, we just got to defend the classics against these mean old, I don't know, these mean old postmodern feminist deconstructionist goobers, right? And that's what I was kind of getting at. And that got me into uh, metamodernism, right? As a kind of who I was introduced, again, it goes, uh, it goes without saying by our mutual associate. Uh, I call him my, my, my bald Punjabi prince, uh, Kasha Vigas, who got me into the, who got me into metamodernism. And coincidentally, and not a lot of people know this, that Kashif was also the figure who introduced Keith Woods, the Irish video blogger for the dissident, right? Into metamodernism, which he since distanced himself. Because I guess he thought it was too left-leaning, which it is. It is almost exclusively a left. What's uh, the what's the guy's name? Oh, Keith Woods. Keith Woods. Yes. Very popular video blogger on YouTube. Um Young man, he's a very young man. I think he's about uh, 20 or 21, but very sharp. Um, and me and, and Keith, you know, despite our, our generation gap, we're, we're kind of coming from a similar pattern. Like we're both nationalists in a sense. I mean, and we're both anti-capitalist, right? Um, which... It's really funny, like there are, but this is this is my point, is that there were people who were on the right who were anti-capitalists who weren't just apologists for like, you know, the market, right? It it disgusted me to no end, right? How you had people on the right who were still obsessed with like the Austrian school and and all of this stuff, and it's like you know these same people, right, are using you know, the power of capital to destroy your communities. You do realize that. They don't care about you. They only care about how much money they can make off of you, right? But it's like you have this, this assumption which is taken up by libertarians exclusively, like government bad, market good, which I think is a false dichotomy because, look, um, the existence of the market predates the existence of capital. Right. When I'm when I say, oh, I am anti-capitalist, I'm not saying I'm anti-free market or markets. Right. The market is a primordial thing. It's ancient. The yeah. capital only really goes back to the market revolution and the rise of industrial society. So there's a disconnect there. And I feel like getting pigeonholed into this kind of false dichotomy uh, well, that just means you're a big government statist who wants welfare money off my back, Jack. Like, that doesn't hold up. I'm sorry. It just doesn't hold up to reality. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned yeah. before the libertarian to alt-right pipeline. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? Sure. So um, prior to uh, – so the alt-right had actually been around – as a kind of like nebulous, um, oh Lord, what is the word I'm looking for? As kind of like a nebulous backdoor forum for all of these different um, ideas. 
it just hadn't taken on the political nature that it had in 2016. So the alt-right was in existence back when the Ron Paul thing had taken off in 2012. It was just in the background, and no one was really thinking about it. But the Ron Paul movement gave energy to um, people who would be dissidents, people who would actually end up being white nationalists, who were who thought, okay, the problem is big government, and it's just to get government off our backs and to be more free and adhere to the principles of a constitution and all this stuff, which manifested itself in, I call it boomer nationalism, but it's, it, it was known as the Tea Party, right? Right. So boomer nationalism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, you had like the Ron Paul movement, you had the Tea Party back during um, the Obama years. You had a strong libertarian current. That's what I'm yeah. trying to get at. But all of that went down the tubes, I think, back when it, okay, so back when Trump became a phenomenon. And Trumpism really kind of brought populism back into the American consciousness in a way that just didn't exist before. And you had to, had like a, these legions of people who had been libertarians, either becoming uh, national populists or white nationalists or ethno-nationalists or, or some kind of dissident, like some kind of hard dissident. And, um, you know, that, that really set the stage for the alt-right's ascendancy back before it kind of devolved into vulgar national socialism and imploded in the aftermath of Charlottesville, right? I mean, it's almost impossible, I think, to speak of the alt-right as a, uh, a movement um, after Charlottesville. Coherent movement, and, yeah. yeah. So, and that's, and you had groups like uh, propertarianism, who I think took, I would argue this, like not everyone's gonna agree with this, but I would argue that you had groups like propertarianism and uh, take up that kind of, they would never admit this, but they took up the classical liberal mantle, I would say. It's basically, they wanted to kind of, you know, combine anarcho-capitalism with Ragnar Redbeard. And it's like, well, you know, I make a whole bunch of money, you know, and after, so that means I'm, I'm going to be like a, an aristocrat in the future, right? It was really, like my critique of propertarianism was like, it's literally just a cool kids club for um, software programmers and computer engineers who thought they were going to be the the uh, barons, dukes, and earls after liberalism goes the way of the dodo, right? Running a society was, algorithmically. Yes, that's that was my problem with it. Like Keith Woods had the accurate, like he called the proprietarian movement codified autism, which to this day I don't think there has been a better label for. Codified but, autism. Yes. But, you know, propertarianism did not emerge out of a vacuum. It already, and a lot of people may or may not know this, but alongside the alt-right, and I guess it existed kind of within it as well, was a movement known as Neo-Reaction, which was founded by uh, uh, some, again, software programmers, um, uh, Mencius Mulberg, uh, the, you know, the pen name of Curtis Yarvin, and Nick Land. Um, and 
it was also like this attempt where it's like, well, we're going to be kind of reactionary. We want to we go beyond the Enlightenment. In fact, they used the name for their movement was the Dark Enlightenment, right? But informally, it's known as the neo-reactionary. And this is just my theory, right? It's like, I think the people, like after Charlottesville, the people who, and again, neo-reaction was not a numerous movement. It was more of like a think tank, an informal think tank, much in the way that, you know, the, the current, I guess you could call the meta-right, you know, the movement that I'm a part of, you know, sort of operates. It's not like a kind of boots on the ground sort of thing. It was very limited to uh, uh, social media and internet blogs, but it was pumping out a lot of interesting ideas. Yeah. Fortunately, a lot of these ideas were just, you know, defenses for um, classical liberal. I would say classical liberalism, but they would say maybe the free market. You know, like I got behind like their monarchism. I got behind maybe their return to traditional forms of spirituality. But this 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 obsession with the market was something that always left a bad taste in my mouth. But again, like, you know, to make a long story short, you had these, the, the libertarian to alt-right pipeline was never, I mean, it wasn't a straight thing, you know, the, it was more like a network of pipes that sometimes maybe overlapped and crisscrossed with one another. Um, and some movements like, like neo-reaction kind of branched off into propertarianism, and now that's kind of imploded. And now you have maybe the more like- Why did uh, that implode? Oh, because uh, I think Kurt Doolittle peed his pants or something. I don't know. Like, you, I yeah, mean, he peed his pants, and he also told black guys they had big dicks and stuff like oh, that. Yeah, it was a like, it, and this was the man who they thought was going to like, I don't know, take them to Mars or something. Like, I don't like, yeah. I don't know. Like, super genius. Something. It's like you. My biggest problem with like, you know, propertarianism was its emphasis. It's almost like. They use the word reciprocity in the same way that libertarians would use the NAP, right? And it's like, well, guess what? Right. Yeah. How do you like? How do you demand reciprocity from people who um, aren't willing to reciprocate? And the classical libertarian response, a lot of people like Hans Hermann Hoppe, would be, "Oh, you just physically remove them. Remove them. Well." What if they come back with a bit with bigger numbers than you, and you're the one being physically removed? How does that play, you know, play into your little every man a micronation kind of thing? Like it, it just is weird. Yeah, it, every uh, man judge, jury, and executioner. That's essentially what they. I mean, that's their idea of freedom. But to me, it's like you know, I've always believed that being part of a community or being part of a a nation or a province or having a history, like being deeply connected to, you know, a, a spot of earth, right? Like that's like, I mean, it, it's, you know, a, a common phrase on the right was blood and soil. And however politicized that phrase might have become in the wake of Charlottesville, I still feel like it's a very powerful or it conjures up a very powerful image, right? Like you can't just, remove people from the land that their ancestors are buried. Like, that's my problem with um, this kind of, well, you know, if you want to make, make it in life, you got to leave, you know, your small 
bumpkin town where, you know, everyone who, you know, like your, your grandparents, your great grandparents are buried and go to like a soulless city and make oodles of money in a call center somewhere. And it's like, no, like that's soulless. That's diabolical. Like, no, like that's not the way forward. That's evil. Like, I mean, to me, and I think Tucker Carlson actually brought up this point to Ben Shapiro, like this very point when um, Ben Shapiro was like, you know, trying to defend like the markets. Like, well, well, don't you know what you're saying kind of sounds like socialism? And it's like, so what? Like the market only works when like, what was it? He had like this saying, it was like, you know, stop judging economic success on how much money people in Wall Street are making or whether the, the, the stock market's up. Right. Judge economic success by whether your children will be able to afford a home and raise children of themselves. And that, yeah. Like, like, yeah, that right there. Tucker has taken a really strong anti-capitalist yes. turn. It's I, the, um, it's the, uh, oh God, what did Vouch call it? Or it was the, um, the, 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 the Natsball Vortex, I think he called it. I'm, are you familiar with the Natsball game? No. no. Okay. Well, so Natsball, like it was an internet meme. It stands for National Bolshevism, right? <laughs> so basically, there's a small political party in like Russia, I think maybe even in Ukraine, where they're avowed Bolsheviks, right? But they're nationalist Bolsheviks. And so people, I know it's weird. It, it's again, it's like a kind of like right wing socialism. Yeah, and it became kind of like a meme ideology where people who were right wing but anti capitalist would comment on like libertarian pages and just type like next ball game in all letters, like in all capital letters. Yeah, yeah, and now it's like this thing where okay, like you have people like Tucker Carlson, and I think even uh, Lauren Southern has come out. Although I think I, I mean I think she's a grifter to be honest. I don't trust anything she says. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's what we're seeing is a kind of loss of faith in free market economics. And I think that's a good thing for the right, to be honest. Yeah, I was just, I just, uh, interviewed Josh Leonard from the uh, post progressive mm -hmm. project and I asked him what right-wing views he integrates and he starts talking about the value of the free market and i was like well hold on a second <laughs> that may have been you know more of a right-wing talking point 10 years ago but now things are trending anti-market which is interesting it sort of implies a shift on the right to more green or postmodern views yes yeah, which is where well, you originated from yes like i I got into the meta right, which again, I mean, it's kind of catching on in consciousness. It's not a big thing. It's like it, I mean, admittedly, the meta right as it stands now is more of like a gaggle of writers and theorists online who are kind of trying to come up with a, a form of right wing political theory or political praxis that doesn't fall into like these more let's call them blue or amber ways of thinking, right? And I know that, 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 you know, strikes people like, well, what do you mean? Isn't the whole, you know, rights thing to be a bunch of like nostalgics 
you know, idolizing like the Middle Ages or the Viking era. And it's like, well, where is that set in stone? Right. Like, why can't we have a kind of like I consider myself to be like maybe post reactionary, Right. Because think about it. What is it that the right was reacting to? It was the Jacobin revolution. It was the um, forms of liberalism that emerged in early colonial America. But now, like, look, like, here's the thing, like modernity, th this is how like, I would define modernity, right? So when a writer says revolt against the modern world, well, what does that mean? What exactly is the modern world they're revolting against? And I've, I've kind of come up with a, a little rubric trying to break it down, right? We can define modernity more or less as the triumph of political ideology over religious tradition, right? We can define modernity as the domination of rationalism and epistemology over metaphysics, right? We can define modernity as the victory of the nation state, you know, the post-Westphalian nation state over the more, uh, the, the feudal empires of like, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, what existed or, you know, up till the, the modern century, you know, you had Austria, Hungary, Hungary, right? Like these kinds of dynastic realms, which you had multiple ethnic groups that weren't like, it wasn't just this people, this state, right? You had uh, a political system where at the top was a monarch who embodied a overriding uh, religious um, belief about the world, right? And this you know, this adherence to tradition, you know, the divine right of kings, you know, that superseded all national distinctions or boundaries. And, but that doesn't exist anymore. That kind of metaphysical thinking of the divine right of kings or mandate of heaven, you can't explain that, right? And I'm someone who still is a monarchist, albeit like tragically, right? Because my, my belief in metaphysics tells me that I think monarchy is probably the best and most natural from government for human beings. But if I'm being realistic, like, look, republicanism is here to stay. Like, republicanism isn't going away. So the, 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 the quest now is to kind of like, okay, well, maybe we can have a kind of post-liberal republicanism. What that will look like, I don't know. I couldn't say. I think we're still in the process of, of kind of charting a new course in these very... Uh, murky waters of the early 21st century. Gotcha. So, um, so how would you define right, like postmodern right? Okay. Do you want the easy definition or you don't, do you want the long definition? Let's start with the easy one. So I would define it simply as green social nationalism. Green or, social nationalism. But green as in like economic. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Green as in like environmental. Yes, there you go. But hey, if you also want to throw like the postmodern aspect into there, that also works too. Um, I would also define it as a as a reconciliation. 
So in metamodernism, it's very cliche almost to speak of oscillation as a term. Metamodernism is defined by the thinkers uh, Vermeulen and Van der Aachen, the architectural theorists who released the metamodernist, uh, or I'm sorry, it was Luke Turner who wrote the metamodernist manifesto. It was Van der Aachen and Vermeulen who had put out their notes on metamodernism. And they define metamodernism as kind of like this oscillation between the poles of modernism, the belief in progress, the goodness of, of uh, human nature, and, and postmodernism as kind of the skeptical uh, a skepticism within the power structures, which modernity and the, in the value memes before it kind of reinforced, right? But I would define right metamodernism or right post-postmodernism as kind of an oscillation between radical traditionalism and futurism, right? Um, mm. Yeah, so it's gonna like, not all like, look, the, the pendulum is not gonna just stop in one place. It's gonna keep moving. You might have people who are further on the traditionalist side. You might have people on um, the, the more futurist side. Like for example, I'm not, I, I don't know if you're aware of uh, a, a writer by the name of Jason Reza Giorgiani. And Giorgiani is, he, well. Hard he, futurism. Yes. So Giorgiani is the founder of an ideological system called Prometheism, which uh, say what, it, it's really, please take this with a grain of salt. Like Prometheism, from what I understand, is basically this this weird Kool-Aid cult slash political ideology where it's like we have to kind of become like transhuman badasses because there's going to be like an invasion of like Nordic alien space Nazis or something that are going to come. The re- I don't. It's really weird. It's really weird. Sounds, basically, what you need reasonable to know. To me. Okay. <laughs> but what you need to know is that Giorgiani is a hard futurist. Like he completely, he's on the right, but he completely rejects um, a belief and uh, maybe not the mystical, but he's very, you know, anti-Christian or he would say Abrahamic, right? He, he, he's against like what we would call maybe like blue or amber ways of thinking. He is hard futurist, right? He basically says, we're going to become transhuman because it's inherent to the survival of, you know, you know, the West or something. Or, I mean, he's also an Iranian um, uh, irredentist, so he probably would identify more with Iranian culture than he would with Western culture. Um, it's really weird. But look, look him up if you have the chance. He's an actually, I mean, he's an interesting guy. He's just kind of gone off the deep end. But again, like that's what I'm, I'm talking about. Like on one end, you have Jason Razor, Giorgiani. On the other hand, you have Ted Kaczynski. And it's like this pendulum between the two, right? And the meta right is kind of like, well, we're going to chart out like a third course between all of this going forward. But yeah, I mean, and I would say with regards to that, the working definition that I've used to kind of define the meta right is it's a not, I'm sorry, it is a post reactionary, archaeo futuristic, and I'm, I'm going to go back to that term in a bit, 
It is a post-reactionary, archaeofuturist form of revolutionary conservatism that embraces aspects of perennial philosophy, deep ecology, and demographic realism. That has been the working definition that I've used. And I want to go back to this term archaeofuturism, because I think you you can't speak of meta-right ideas without going back to a specific book put out by um, another writer, uh, Guillaume Fay, who himself was part of the French New Right, which was kind of like a circle of intellectual writers and thinkers who were trying to go beyond, like, they were essentially the precursors to what we're trying to do now, right? You had these, it was mostly two guys, but, you know, they had like a circle of other writers, right? It was um, Alain de Benoit and Guillaume Fay who were trying to, they were, they were basically the original green or postmodern right, like the original guys. They kind of rejected uh, traditional Catholicism or traditional Christianity. They were very pagan in their ways of thinking. In fact, uh, back when I was a pagan, you know, I, I poured over, I poured myself over uh, Alain de Benoit's book on being a pagan. Like he, re- he literally wrote the book on being a pagan. Um, and uh, so the thing about the New Right was they were intensely, they were intensely pan-European, they were anti-American, they were neo-pagan, and they were also, although they would not admit this themselves, incredibly postmodern. And along that, in, in a similar vein, you had, you know, the big cheese himself, Alexander Dugan, who was kind of writing parallel to the New Right with his fourth political theory. Right. I mean, I, yeah. Like, I, I guess, like, I feel like I'm being bold because I feel like maybe your audience is more familiar with, like, you know, oh, Ken Wilber, maybe Hansi Freinach, not so much Alexander Dugan or Alain de Benoit. There's some but, uh, awareness of Dugan. Okay, yes, he's the, he's the more well-known out of all of them. Um, but yeah, it's like you had the, the French New Right, you had a fourth political theory, and they were the first attempts to kind of have like a postmodern right that wasn't just going back to like, um, gosh, like traditional Catholicism or whatever, because that was like, that was the mainstay, right? Like when people thought like conservatism, they thought like, oh, maybe Roger Scruton, maybe Pat Buchanan, I don't know, maybe if you want to go even deeper, you have like the, the counter-revolutionary thinkers such as uh, Donoso Cortez, um, Nicolas Gomez de Villa, um, and who was the who was the the famous one? I know Edmund Burke was in there as well, but there was a French writer uh, who was like the arch. He was the arch conservative. Um, oh Lord, he was the guy who 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 defended the royalists against the the French revolutionaries, right? Um, I, I'm embarrassed, honestly, that I forgot his name because he's, um, but anyway, it'll probably come back to me. But anyway, it, it wasn't falling back into these kind of like uh, Christian democratic or monarchist, let's call it that. It wasn't falling back into the whole traditional conservative, monarchist, maybe distributist or pro-free market uh, or, or capitalist sympathetic movements. 
right? Certainly it wasn't, it wasn't descending back into Reaganism. That's for sure. And what I feel like people in the meta right are trying to do is kind of build on the legacy of these postmodern right movements for something that could be post-postmodern, or if we're going to use the word, metamodern, right? And I want to just make it clear that I feel like I am the, the thorn and like, I might as well be the thorn in the side of Hansi Freinoff, right? Like, if you look at his articles in, in Meta Moderna, you, uh, you find that the meta right has a special place of antipathy in uh, his writings. Because again, you know, meta modernism originally began as a form of cultural criticism and architectural theory. But it was Hansi who, um, who added up, I would contest the term political, but he would say political dimension. Uh, when he political this, dementia? I'm sorry. He would, no, no, no. He, he added a political dimension to it. Okay. My bad. Um, Got it. No, I, I don't think he's demented. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, he's certainly much more of an optimist than I am. But anyway, uh, but no. So I think Hansi put out the Listening Society back in 2015. And, you know, it's, it's essentially like a left libertarian uh, uh, experiment with, okay, so what is, what is the solution that comes after liberal, uh, liberalism, right? Because Hansi himself is not like, he's a liberal, but he's not like a liberal in the sense of like neo-lib kind of liberalism. And I, I kind of use the term, like I used the term green social nationalist before as a kind of like tongue-in-cheek reference to Hansi's experiment, which he describes as being green social liberalism, right? So uh, <laughs> basically, like you could, you could say a whole bunch of things about the listening society. I think the book itself is like 400 to 600 pages, but I'm going to sum that up. It's basically an advocate an advocation for social democracy 2.0. That's it. Like that is basically his plan. And I've been very skeptical of that plan because I think, well, I mean, okay. Yeah. Liberal democracy is kind of going down the tubes, but so is social democracy. Right. It's like, I, I tend to think, you know, having a welfare state is a good thing, but the welfare state in its current form is kind of like being overburdened. Like the welfare state presupposes one a homogenous population that isn't at each other's throats. And we're already seeing a collapse of that in Sweden, which is, um, well, let me, let me try to be generous. It is the sexual assault capital of Europe as it stands. Um, so, I mean, if social democracy and liberal democracy aren't the answer, well, then what is? And I think it's a kind of new social nationalism. I think it's a real return to roots that isn't rooted in this kind of nostalgism for the past. Although, I mean, look, it's always good to pay homage to who we are and where we came from. I'm not contesting that. Like, I feel like identity, having an identity is a good thing, no matter who you are. I mean, look, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or a Maasai warrior in the highlands of Kenya. You know, we all come from somewhere. We all dream in our own languages. Like, that's what I'm getting to. Like, identity is a good thing. But I also 
understand that moving people around and resettling them creates antagonisms. And I think that needs to be addressed. Like I, like generally, I'm against whatever, um, rather I should say, I'm for whatever reduces human suffering in, what, in whatever way. I'm for whatever reduces human suffering. And I think that having uh, two different groups of peoples living cheap and jowl, or even more than that, having different groups of peoples who have nothing in common with one another, again, living cheek and jowl next to each other creates a recipe for conflict. And look, I've seen this in person. Like one of my coworkers is an Iraqi, right? And he has seen firsthand the devastation that the, um, the Sunni Shia conflicts have caused, right? And these are people who are part of, they speak the same language. They're part of the same nation. Although let's be fair, I mean, Iraq, as an independent state is fairly young, but you know, they have, I mean, if, if people's, if, if these types of antagonisms, I say, I think, you know, these different, you have, I'm trying to gather my thoughts. If you have like different tribes, different groups of people, like who have historically lived by each other for centuries, like we see maybe in the Middle East or in Sub-Saharan Africa, and they can't get along despite living next to each other for the dawn of time, how are you going to reconcile this in the 21st century by just moving different peoples via airplanes and settling them next to each other? And this was a conversation I had with Brent Cooper. I don't know if you ever had him on the, but we, this, this was years ago, or maybe like a, maybe a year or two ago. And we talked about this and, you know, Brent made, you know, Brent made the argument like, well, Hey, look, like we were, were, if you have like a college, a university, and if you go to that university, there are going to be people of diverse ethnic backgrounds there. And they're all going to kind of socialize and get along and work together and study together. And I made the comment, well, look, Brent, what, ha what, what happens when they go home? You know, they're going to go home and they're going to uh, speak their own languages. They're going to have dinner with their own local foods and maybe on the weekend they'll get up and go to whatever temple or church they they have and pray to whatever specific gods are or belong to their culture it's easy to think um that multiculturalism works on the surface because well we have a kind of uh um superstructure in place that kind of conceals the the um it's almost like a faux civic religion i would say it's like okay we pay lip service to maybe one language one set of values right but then afterwards when you know the the when the bonfire is over when we stop seeing kumbaya and passing around the bomb yeah, they, they leave the modernity camp and yes and they go, go back to what they know right that's my that's what I'm kind of getting at. And well, yeah, because a lot of this stuff like uh, spiral dynamics and such, it's describing the lower left, uh, the collective values that we share, and the collective worldview. And yeah, I can participate in an orange world today and go home to my amber family, and then I'm participating in that. 
Exactly. Yes. But it also, I would also say this is what makes, this is the grave mistake of people who really sincerely believe in uh, spiral dynamics or rather the universalism that it kind of presupposes. Spiral dynamics presupposes modern Western liberal values as getting better or improving. But these values are only found in Europe and European or European descended societies, right? Like we would be talking a whole different language, like both figuratively and literally, if say perhaps um, gosh, uh, somehow if Islam had achieved the prominence that the West had during the age of discovery, right? We'd be, we would be, you know, you and I might be, uh, you know, talking about like, um, certain passages in the Quran or the Hadith or something like that. And like, I mean, and not about like Uga Booga, like, you know, gender identity and feminism and like, you know, and trying to be all huggy, lovey-dovey and just, I mean, like it presupposes like all of these notions, right? Or if it were the, if it were the, again, like if our societies were more informed by the values of East Asia, right? If, if Confucianism had somehow achieved the prominence that the Enlightenment had, a lot of what we would, we would be, a lot of our thought would be influenced by, you know, maybe, you know, Taoist cosmology and certainly the Confucian conception of filial piety, right? And our obligations in the social arena. So it's like, what makes these values that we assume to be universal? Just because the West has had a, has a, has had a, a dominance, you know, over everyone else in terms of its ways of thinking. Not everyone accepts the, the, the tenets or the discoveries of the scientific revolution or the values of the enlightenment. I mean, I don't. Like, I think we kind of need another, we need a dark enlightenment 2.0. We need to think, well, hey, if the values of the first enlightenment, it were liberalism and rationalism and humanism, maybe we need another enlightenment to kind of get us through the crisis. And Lord, believe me, I don't, I don't have any hope that the 21st century is going to be like this era where we all achieve you know, what, what was it? What was it, like uh, turquoise or coral mega mind consciousness? And we're all going to be like ascended yogic supermen who just subsist off of like green tea. And we, and air. yeah, it's like, do, do these people really think that? Like, I, I don't know. Like, no, maybe, we're not all going to be, there's going to be a few turquoise Ubermenschen who uh, establish, you know, a turquoise Reich. <laughs> <laughs> yes like it, it'll be the um yeah in the death camps of tolerance or something right <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that's 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 how i imagine like no I'm, I'm dead serious like that's what like that's that is what's gonna happen like i'm i'm convinced about it like but i don't know like the future hasn't been decided right there's lots of things that can happen and I'm just kind of focused on trying to maybe catch the 
the tail end of like the shadow of what the future holds, right? I think it's really important to kind of like look at the trends and not kind of be stuck in like a, a certain mindset. Like for instance, like, look, I've abandoned essentially like all of my ideological um, pre like presumptions about the world, right? And once you do that, like may maybe that also goes back to my, my metaphysics too. I don't know, like Marshall, like I, I, I feel myself stuck. Like I'll get really upset with like the failures of my own specific religious tradition, right? Like I'll feel like, oh, you know, orthodoxy will only, it'll only become political if, you know, if it's about, you know, abortion rights, but not about like things that I also find of dire importance, such as climate change, right? I feel like I'm a firm believer in like anthropocentric climate change, right? And that matters to me. And it's like a lot of these traditionalist groups, they believe like, oh, well, the planet's just always going to be there. Okay, yeah, maybe, but like how is, you know, what, what effect is that gonna have on human civilization? Again, like I, I need to stress, like I'm, I'm generally for whatever abolishes the possibility of human suffering, right? Um, and I, I just, I don't want to- It's a very green ethos. I mean, I mean, yeah, like I have these moments where I maybe I feel a little bit more blue or amber. And then I think, well, big picture, like we need to be thinking like what- Yeah. It yeah. seems like you are like you started out in this green place and you're sort of like grasping for some kind of integral or or meta modern solution. Uh it's like you've dabbled in all the different flavors of um postmodern right-wing thought and found them all limited in various ways. And so you're just sort of like sort of like fumbling around in the dark, like trying to find what, where the things are going, you know, what the future right. is and right, participating in that. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, because that's what matters to me. It's not like, look, I mean, as much as I am a student of history, the past is in the past. And I'm not saying like the struggle isn't for antiquity. Right. The struggle is for the future, right? That's like, that is what matters. Like what kind of future are we going to have? Like our victory, again, however you want to define it. Like I, I'm assuming, you know, the people who watch this channel, they know something's wrong. They know that, you know, uh, post-industrial civilization has kind of gone askew, that something is deeply, deeply wrong. And, you know, I, speaking to like whatever dissidents may be out there or people who are countercultural types, I don't know. Our victory lies in, you know, winning the future, right? Like what kind of future that might be, I don't know, I can't say, but that's where it's going to, like that is, it's not just going to be like, okay, us in this moment. We need to be thinking about like what type of world our descendants are going to inherit. Um, I mean, we're not just here to, you know, like, we're not just here to, you know, like defend like a certain dogma, right? And I'm speaking more in terms of like, uh, my fellow co-religionists, right? Like, okay, like, 
do we need to have all these certain like orthodox debates like oh we need to debate like protestantism or these muslims or these catholics like okay that's all very good and interesting but is that what matters right now like i'm into that stuff like you know i watch jay dyer occasionally and but i also like I, hell i've read like freaking on the incarnation and on the unity of christ like these es- like these truly esoteric christological tomes right sometimes more than once but is that what we need right now in this moment no we need a kind of like meta theory maybe that's going to get us from where we are now to a future that hopefully is not in flames i mean it's looking a little less yeah i don't know so you once you once made a comment about um orange was a mistake you know as an aberration and we just skip from like amber to green. Oh, okay. I wonder how you feel about that now. That was a while back. Yeah. Sure. No. I'm wondering if you now have sort of, you're starting to integrate the merits of orange and not just this sort of orange is here to stay and we can't really do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember that comment. Um, I think that was a lot of my anti-modernism speaking. Uh, I really just, yeah, I want to say that that may have been premature because. Sure. But I'm just wondering now, like, have you come to embrace modernity? Yes. And I know that's like, I know if my, my fellow Orthodox friends saw that they would be horrified, but it's like, look, I mean, Again, like I said earlier, there's no putting Cromwell and Westphalia back in the box. There's no undoing the Enlightenment. You can't just like, it's that famous uh, phrase, it's that famous quote, right? When um, there was this journalist who interviewed, uh, it was a president of China. I think his, I think it was Xi Jinping. And he asked him, what are your thoughts on the French Revolution? And his reply, his famous reply was, it's too early to tell, right? And that's kind of how I feel like we're still kind of living in with the presuppositions of modernity, right? Despite like all of postmodernism's attempt to kind of like, uh, kind of like undo the assumptions associated with modernism. But I think it's because like someone like myself, and I think this is especially true, after I've read, after how, after how um, I've reread actually the writing of Carl Schmidt. And so postmodernity or postmodernism was really concerned about power structures. And the political theory of Carl Schmidt simply but effectively defines the essence of the political as the ability to make a distinction between friend and enemy, right? And I think that. I mean, he was writing in the 40s or maybe the 20s, actually. But I feel like maybe I have a little bit too much green in me, right? Maybe um, I'm too much of a postmodern myself. Like, I'm still concerned with all these power structures. And maybe I'm skeptical of, of orange or modernities or modernism's faith in human pro- progress. Like, I'm very skeptical of the idea of progress, right? In fact, if I'm being honest, Marshall, like, I, I honestly, I've always rejected the idea of progress, both intellectually and philosophically. 
Because what is the idea of progress implied, right? It's like the, I, I call it the iPhone mentality. It's like everything's going to get better. Everything's just going to keep getting better. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, that this Pixar movie, uh, WALL-E, right? Uh, but anyway, what was, what was the thing in WALL-E, right? You know, humans kind of off-boarded the planet and now they're in this spaceship where they're all just like these overweight, like morbidly obese. That's progress. You know? Yeah, that, that is the end goal. Like that is like that is the the fat people in the hover chairs is the that is the end of history. That is the the culmination of pro it is. If you have everything you want, like if you have like the VR headset in front of you and like more disgusting and grotesque types of junk food at your side and you're just kind of floating around With the masturbation machine <laughs> yes, but that's what it is like this is why i'm i don't believe I don't, I'm not plugged a, into the metaverse exactly like and i do think that has so much the idea of the metaverse i think has re, uh, repercussions that we're not even able to grasp yet like i was thinking about this the other day um there was this uh oh god so there was this um anime i had watched decades ago right and it was about it was kind of like highlander in a way it was about this chick who um was immortal she was like an immortal being and it it went through like different decades right and almost prophetically granted i had watched this in 2008 it was in 2025, you had like this boom, like VR was becoming virtually accessible or easily accessible. I'm sorry. And so much so that there was a national health crisis of young men dropping out of society because they were addicted to their VR headsets. Like you had like literally like these young men who were just like, like sitting like homeless bums on like the street or outside of buildings, just kind of addicted to like their VR headsets or whatever. And they would just like beg for change to keep the thing going, right? And I feel like that is what's like, that is in store for us. Like I, I firmly believe that is a stark possibility. But I don't know, like, it's like whenever I worry about the future something else has already happened, right? And I gotta worry about that too. It's- Maybe it's the crazy. answer is not to worry about the future. Yeah, you know, I mean, Albert. But to take steps right now towards whatever's optimization for you. True. I mean, and Albert Einstein had that quote where he was like, you know, I don't worry about the future; it comes soon enough, right? I mean, maybe I need to start incorporating that into my my life. But I mean, I don't know. Like, there is. I'm I'm generally like pro technology. Like, I'm not a I'm not a anarcho primitivist or Kaczynskiite or any of these things. Because I just feel like, you know, like, yeah, I like the internet. I like Amazon. I mean, maybe not Jeff Bezos, but I like the convenience that, you know, post-industrial society can offer. You know, and I think that our ability to interact with people across the world, like, you know, you and I may be living in different states, but we're able to speak, you know, maybe not face-to-face, -face, but I can see, I can clearly see you, right? I mean, maybe you're you're in the metaverse right now, right? I also got to say, I love that synthwave backdrop you have going. Like, I'm a I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of vaporwave, synthwave, future funk. 
Like, I know. I, I, I like it too. I, w- I was trying to understand, like, what, w- where did this come from? Like, there was this resurgence of synth wave aesthetics on the right. What the hell is that about? It's the death of the future. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with a left wing author by the name of Mark Fisher. But he's someone I've picked up, and I think a few right-wing people are starting to look into. So Mark Fisher was a left-wing cultural critic, and he wrote about what was called hauntology. And um, Hauntology, yeah. yeah. Yeah, specifically like the death of the future and how, like, in, what he meant by that, right, was that all of our cultural trends have basically been a rehashing of previous trends Uh, from the last three decades, right? It's like we're stuck at this point where we cannot imagine a future that's different than what has already been conceived in the past. It's just like, it really is like this end of history scenario, right? Where we at the end of history are trying to imagine the future from the lens of what people in previous decades and generations imagine it to be, right? And that's informing our music. That's informing our movies. Like I remember, there's a movie out there called um, Retro Player One, right? It, it, you ready, know, Ready Player One. Yeah, there you go. No, Retro Player One was the name of a, a music channel that puts out this type of music. My bad. Yeah, Ready Player One. Um, gosh, uh, there were. I think there was another one. Anyway, but yeah, it's like me and Alex and another. Uh, mutual of ours, a uh, Clifton, Clifton Knox. Uh, we had a podcast actually about this very thing. We went on for like three hours, but we talked about like, you know, the death of the future, ontology, and it really is like a very millennial thing, right? Where it's like, you know, like someone my age, like I'm 30 right now, but I grew up in the 90s, right? I I grew up in the the dot com boom, and at that time. I was being told, and it looked like the sky was the limit. You had all of these cool gadgets coming out, not just in the domestic market, but from overseas, right? And you had Pokemon, and you had all of these, you know, sales at Sears or Radio Shack or something. Like, you had all of this cool stuff, and it looked like things were going to get better. And then what happened? You, the the dot-com bubble burst in. The Twin Towers fell, right? And we've been living in this kind of, you know, the postmodern hellscape ever since. Like, it's, but, you know, it's like, and now we can't even imagine a future of our own. We have to go back to, like, these previous forms, these previous modes of, of, of cultural production of ways of thinking, right? That's why everyone's going back to the 80s, because it was, like, this last time, right, where... America as a unified country to get together and listen to the same sorts of music, enjoy the same movies, right? It was the air, it was the generation or the decade of, of Top Gun. It was the decade of Michael Jackson and Madonna. And everyone was listening to it, right? The 80s was this time where no matter who you were or you know what you looked like, you were all experiencing the same thing. And everyone just wanted to have a good time and drink Crystal Pepsi and I don't know, like go to the roller rink with your gal. It was yeah. like, that's what I feel like it's getting at. It's like, 
we can't escape like the, the thing about you know ontology or retro culture or the death of the future is acknowledge and this is something i'm very interested in i mean i think it's why i like vaporwave so much um because it appeals to this thing like i mean there's a there's a there's a um, subgenre of vaporwave called mall soft right and i remember going to the malls as a, as a child and just being like bewildered by all the indoor palm trees and the the indoor pools and i thought this is the coolest thing ever and I could go to like the store that had all the retro games, like the old, like the old uh, NES games that that my older brother, who was who was born in like the eighties, enjoyed, right? And I thought, like, man, it's not going to get better than this, right? And I guess it didn't, because, like, I mean, has anything really improved? I mean, maybe our medical science, but as as a culture, like, has our culture, has our has our way of like imagining a, a, a future independent of the tropes of the past. Has that happened? No. And I don't know, like that's what I'm trying to kind of get to. Like we could kind of use the aesthetics of the past to kind of propel us towards a future that is original, right? And I think a lot of, I think that's, a you find that a lot in, in meta-right circles, right? Like you can't speak of the meta-right without also kind of getting into its ontology. And I, I mentioned this in the podcast I did with Alex, right? What separates the meta-right from mere reactionaries or traditionalists, right? Is this idea, okay, so the traditionalist or the reactionary is pining for a past that no longer exists. Maybe it didn't exist. Maybe it's mythic. Someone like myself, and I feel like people who are getting into the meta right, especially if they're our age, they're nostalgic for a future that never happened. They're orphans for a future that they were promised by their parents, by their teachers, and it never materialized. You know, they were thinking they were going to inherit a world that was far better than the one they grew up with. And it never happened. Now they're stuck working at, you know, now they're, I mean, they're baristas at Starbucks. They're, you know, they're working at Lowe's or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to hurt. I don't want to like, look, if you're working an honest job, like I respect you, but what I'm trying to It wasn't to the say, future they were promised. Yes. It wasn't the future they were promised. Like it's 2021 and there, there are still no like flying cars, for instance, right? Like, you know, where are the flying cars? Another few years. Yeah. Maybe Elon Musk will release a model. I don't know. Like who, who knows? But yeah, that's just, there, there's so many things. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hauntology. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to read this. It says, it's the return or persistence of elements of, from the past as in the manner of a ghost. Mm -hmm. Is introduced by French philosopher Jacques Derrida in his 1993 book, Spectres of Marx. Basically, the, it was the observation that Marxism uh, kept haunting Western society from beyond the grave. Which is true. Yeah, that's still true. Like, 
like I have like, and I think this is more of like a boomer slash Gen X thing. Like I have one of the greatest errors I think the alt-right made. And this is still true. I think with people who are on the right, who are Gen Xers is they, they want to ascribe all of the subverse, like the subversive elements that have been kind of undermining Western culture to this notion of cultural Marxism, right? But is Marxism, like, is it really a force to be reckoned with anymore? I mean, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Like, it's, it's, it's ceased to exist for, like, two decades now. And all the remaining Marxist-Leninist regimes, well, one, China and Vietnam have embraced very authoritarian forms of market capitalism. Cuba, Laos, and North Korea are really the only three states that have command economies. And I'm thinking, like, is it Marxism that's been undermining Western culture, or is it liberalism, or specifically neoliberalism? Like, I, I think a lot of our economic problems kind of go back to, like, the Bretton Woods system of, of finance. So I don't know if you guys know about the Bretton Woods system, but basically it was like during the, the midpoint of World War II, all these bankers and economic theorists got together. I think they were from the U.S. and Britain, and they met in, in a little town called Bretton Woods, and they basically charted out like what the post-war economic system was going to look like. And our whole system of international finance uh, to banking is based on that system. I mean, it's not something that I think gets talked about a lot. Countries but. promised that their central banks would maintain fixed exchange rates between their currencies and the dollar. Yeah. It, makes it, it basically it made every uh, country on earth subservient to the U.S. dollar, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's not Marxism, folks. Like, that's capitalism. I'm sorry. Like, it's not... Um, like, I, I understand, like, look, during, like, the great awakening of 2011, it was very trendy to bash, like, the deconstruction people, the postmoderns, the people who may have been culturally Marxist because they liked Marx or whatever, or because they were left-wing anti-capitalists. But it's like, look, the goofy blue-haired feminist or the, 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 the fat acceptance person those aren't the people who are undermining your societies. They're just goofballs. Like it's, it's really like subversion is not a bottom down. It's not a bottom up thing. It's a top down. Right. It's like, well, so this gets into like what Marxism, what, what a, what cultural Marxism is. Um, it's not so much anti-capitalist anymore. Yeah, I mean, I've never liked the term cultural Marxism, really. Because one, I don't think the Frankfurt School ever had the influence that people thought it did. I think, I really think if you want to say... Well, I don't know. I mean, you've got uh, Marcusa. Sure. Look, who was okay. the father of the new left. Okay, true. That is true. But it's like, was anyone really reading Adorno or Benjamin? I get it. Marcuse was certainly, he is the founder of the new left, but what thinkers were influencing leftist thought during this period? 
it wasn't the Frankfurt School. It was the French post-structuralist school, right? It was people like, um, again, Derrida, Baudrillard, uh, Lyotard. Foucault. Yeah, Foucault. Oh, yeah, Foucault was a big one. Um, it, it was these people who had went on to influence uh, academia. Right, but they were really just like continuing the project of the Frankfurt School. Were they? I mean, I don't know. I just feel like maybe, okay, maybe if, maybe if the Frankfurt School got things started, these were the guys who kind of hit the pedal to the metal and accelerated that. Yeah, I don't really think of uh, the the Frankfurt School as really the 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 basis of cultural Marxism. I don't. I feel that was more traditional Marxism. They were making. I mean, they were making anti-capitalist critiques, and they were doing the cultural turn. But um, I would say that took a lot longer for um well okay so you had um gramsci okay yes cultural hegemony yes and he was still a marxist but he was the one that was like and there was some and there was interaction between um gramsci and uh, adorno i believe or horkheimer or something like that mm-hmm. And so he was the one that really said, okay, capitalism maintains its sort of stronghold by control of the cultural institutions. Um, and he identified five cultural institutions that need to be um, infiltrated, in a sense. And he said uh, the church, law, education, media, and the family. Okay. So he was responsible for like the cultural turn. Um, but then, you know, there was a lot of different evolutions. So you can kind of, in, in modern, like um, what some call cultural Marxism or identity Marxism, um, you can see the sort of Marxian template the, um, the oppressor and oppressed structure, the overthrow. Right by the underclass, or you know, so it's like that. If you if you're looking at it from a ontological perspective, you can see the the whole Marxian template, the turn from economics to culture, um, combined with some of the weapons like the deconstructive weapons, um, from and and you know Foucault's. Uh, episteme. Mm-hmm. So it's just there's this evolution of thought, and you can you know, but but like modern cultural Marxism is not really Marxism, but but here it's not really traditional Marxism. But this is really interesting if you compare like Bernie Sanders from his first run for president to his next run for president, there was a marked shift from like traditional socialism to identity politics. Like he really embraced the whole um, systemic racism or white supremacy critique. Yeah. No. Um, so even him, he's like a hardcore traditional socialist. And even, even he, it was just 
It only took a few years for him to make that shift. Right. But that's, I think that gets to my point is like Marxism is essentially dead. Or at least in the sense that we understand it. Like, look, and just to note, Gramsci is actually really thought well of in, in new right circles. Like Gramsci had, I think, a profound influence on along the Benoit and people in the new right. But again, so here's why I say that Marxism or conventional Marxism is kind of like, it's, it's, it's a spectrum, right? I, I don't think it's possible to speak of Marxism outside of its dialectics on economics. Because if, it, if Marxism just becomes Marxism as applied to culture, we're speaking of something entirely different. And you see this, you see this in the left, right? Like if you read the works of, um, I think Baudrillard specifically, I'm probably butchering his name, but if you read- uh, Baudrillard, I think. Yeah, uh, Samothra and Simulation, I read that book and came away thinking like this could have been written by a conservative. Like he seems to have been like, just, I don't know. He seems to have lost faith in like the ability of Marxism to really be like an economic force, right? And it's almost like the left is becoming post-Marxian. But see, when you abandon Marx's critique on economics, and you apply it to culture, what are you left with? I mean, you've already said it. It's identity politics. And left-wing identity politics, that's essentially social nationalism, right? So it's like, I'm, I'm kind of like a social nationalist like from the right, you know? And um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's where we're at. It's like, you know, the haves and the have-not thing has just been applied to culture now to apply to race right. ethnicity or some cultural power yeah it's it really is that it, it really is all about that and that i think that's just where we're at that's going to be a continuous thing where it's going to be the tribalization and i really mean that it's going to be like we are going to be returning to a kind of tribalism it's like we're going to have like you know the technology that we do we do now but it's like the third worldization almost of the Northern hemisphere. I want to say like, it would not shock me. And I hate to say this because I feel like I'm just the arch pessimist, but it would not shock me in like the next decade. We have, uh, you know, like car bombs going off in major American cities becoming irregular. It would not shock me. Or, you know, maybe you'll have like radical groups. Maybe you'll have like Minutemen or, Antifa types, maybe not this. Maybe I'm going to exaggeration. Maybe we'll have like, you know, what do you what do you call them? Like the anti-aircraft batteries on the back of Toyotas? No. Maybe that's too much of a stretch. But what I'm trying to say is like things are not getting better, right? And we need a solution, which I think is going to take the form of a kind of national divorce, right? Where I do, I really am strongly for that. Like I think. I mean, in my writing, I've been very critical of what I call the American federal empire, right? Where you have like different tribes of people in the United States and they all are just kind of like forced to live 
with one another. And the only times we kind of put aside our differences is what? Like the Super Bowl, where we gather together to, you know, drink beer and guzzle down corn syrup and yell at the TV screen. At, it's like, but that's like, I mean, it sounds silly, but that's the reality of the situation, right? I hear you. So you, you live in Texas, right? I do. I do. So you're hoping for secession? I am. I mean, granted, like Texas secessionism has assumed a very, like, I don't, I mean, maybe it's not Reaganite, but it's like, it's, you know, very libertarian oriented, right? And yeah, like, I'm very pro-secession. I, I just, I'm tired of living in this madhouse of a country, right? I mean, maybe you have different thoughts on that. And I, I don't blame people who are attached to America as an ideal. America doesn't exist anymore. It's just a marketplace. It's a strip mall stretching from sea to shining sea, right? It's not the country your grandparents had. It's not even the country your parents knew anymore. It's this horrible, like, oligarchic, corporate thing that is just diabolical down to its bare bones. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. And I'm saying this as someone like, you know, like I wanted things to be different, man. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking like, Hey, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a right-wing extremist. Like, no, I grew up thinking like, I want like my ideal. And I, I, I want to preface this by saying that I'm not a civic nationalist, but I wish that civic nationalism could have worked. I wish we could have come together. I wish it could have been like, a new 80s where we just come together to drink our, our cherry Pepsi and, you know, like, crystals of cherry Pepsi. Well, I mean, they face it out. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's like where we just come together, listen to, you know, the best lo-fi hits, you know, the future funk radio, whatever. And we're all just jamming out, having a good time. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Hispanic or whatever. We're all just, chilling we want to have a good time we want to party we're enjoying another boom economy right but that's not what's happening things have just they're getting worse and i i just don't think they're going to get better i would like for them to get better i just don't see it as a possibility and i think with that in mind national divorce has to be the only way out like i don't know what form that's going to take maybe it'll be ethno-nationalism, maybe it'll be bioregionalism. Maybe it'll be a kind of state-based secession where it's like red state, blue state. Like there's yeah. possibilities that could happen. Maybe it'll be like, you know, an indirect war on the red states by the blue states using their power through like the channels of the federal empire to kind of punish them or their, their, their I don't know, their attachment to the refusal to give up on historic America. I don't know what could happen. There's a plethora of scenarios. You mentioned, um, so you, you defined, you defined meta right as including demographic realism. Yes. Why don't you tell me more what that means? So it means that demographics are destiny, right? You get the country with the population that you means that you know europeans build societies that look like western civilizations it means 
it means that wherever that you know people who are of Chinese origin go, they build Chinatowns. It means that wherever you have a pocket of Latin Americans, it tends to look feel like Latin America. It means that whenever you have African descended peoples um, come together as a community, it look they tend to look and feel like Africa, right? Civilizations or cultures or whatever they produce, you know, outcomes or, or um, societies that look and feel like their places of origin, right? There's a reason why, despite existing on the same island, the Dominican Republic and Haiti are drastically different. Haiti tends to look, feel like Africa, while the Dominican Republic more or less resembles a country that we would think of when we visit uh, a Latin American country, right? This isn't to say that it's not my place to say that one culture is better or worse than another, because I feel like if, I mean, I mean, if I were to say like, if my measure of success is Eurocentric and I think, oh, well, then for a country to be successful, they need to have a high, you know, a very developed economy. They need to have very developed infrastructure. Uh, they need to be uh, producing and consuming all these goods, you know, but there's nothing, I mean, what makes like, a rural backwoods African village, any, what makes it worse than like a, mes, uh, a metropolitan major city? Certainly the people in that village would, you know, be more, um, I guess, in communion with their neighbors, with uh, their, their families, with their local histories and culture. Um, but it also means accepting that when you get different cultures, that, that civilizations, right, they, they are defined by the fault lines that exist between them. That's just, uh, you know, like, history is a slaughter bench. There's no easy way to put it. And whenever you have the fault lines of civilization, there's going to be earthquakes, right? Um, that's just how it is. And it means, like, coming to terms with that. It means really accepting that, that... I mean, yeah, you could try to have a scenario where you have Western-style, liberal, postmodern democracies existing um, alongside uh, the Muslim world, maybe, right? But hey, we already had a situation like that in, well, maybe it wasn't a, a, a Western democracy. It was more maybe orthodox, right? We saw this with the collapse of Yugoslavia, right? We had these Orthodox um, peoples, the Serbs, right? Uh, and they had a large minority population of Muslims in the form of Bosniaks. And we all know how that went, right? Like, I'm very skeptical of multiculturalism's praises. I feel like it tends to produce more conflict than it does compassion. And look, I get along well with people of a variety of ethnic backgrounds, right? I mean, me and that Iraqi gentleman I just mentioned, we have a good time talking to each other, although he's actually a liberal, so I'm, I'm shocked. Like, I've never met someone from the Middle East who wasn't a liberal. But we, well, when they come over here, I mean, this yeah. country sort of selects for uh, people who are more liberal. It's interesting. 
Right. He's also, um, you know, what's funny is the way most uh, right-wing people would think about the state of Israel, right? Their anti-Zionism. He honestly uh, ascribes all of that to Iran, which maybe, I mean, the guy lived through the Iran-Iraq war. So I'm assuming that's probably why that is. I've never just met someone from the Middle East who, who thought that way. It's really interesting. Mostly because I go, I, I attend a, um, an Arabic speaking church. Well, I, mean, I say Arabic speaking. There are a lot of Levantine people who go there, right? It's an Antiochian parish. But, um, but yeah, it's not like, you know, I personally have, like, I'm not like some avowed racist who just wants to shake my fist at, you know, the, the POCs or something. It's like, oh, why don't you just speak English? Like, I mean, granted, I think English is the best language on earth because I'm just a chauvinist in that regard, right? It's the language of Chaucer. It's the language of Shakespeare, right? Like, I also, I also find um, gendered languages to be incredibly silly. Like, you know, like when I study Spanish, I'm thinking, well, what makes the table feminine? Why is the table feminine? It's a good question. Right? I know. Like, I, I just never like that about the romance languages. But that's well, there's got to be a reason for it. Possibly. I mean, I don't know what that reason is. They wouldn't just do it randomly. <laughs> yeah, I just never understood that. Like, I don't know. Like, but that's what I'm getting at. It's like, yeah, every culture. That's where you has... serve food. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's very right. But yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, look, I, like when I say I'm a demographic realist, it means that demography matters. Like, look, you know, if you're if you have a country, right, that was a previous that that you know that was made up of a certain group of people, and then all of a sudden a different group of people settle and begin to outnumber that group of people, it ceases to be that country, right? It ceases to become what it was and begins to be something else. That's just a matter of you know history. Like if Texas. Like, look, we have a large Hispanic population in Texas. And if Texas, you know, for whatever reason, through demographics or, or whatever, becomes like majority Hispanic, which I think it already is, and somehow Spanish becomes the uh, lingua franca of Texas, well, it, even if it exists as part of the United States or as an independent republic, it may as well just be another part of the Latin American world at that point. Um, I, I just don't see the benefit other than, I mean, liberals might say, well, think about all the ethnic food. And I remember Richard Spencer quoting that one Monty Python sketch where he said, well, hey, now that we have the recipes, <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, no, but it's like, I don't see how going to the supermarket and only understanding half of the people there, what they're speaking is somehow a strength. I just, I don't, I don't see it in that way. I mean, look, I wish it would be nice, right? It w wouldn't it be nice if all the peoples of the world could just come together and just give themselves a big old hug, like, you know, but has that been the Imagine story? All yeah. the people. Oh, what a dystopian song that is, right? <laughs> it is. It's it's frightening. It's like like my parents are are they're boomers, right? They love John Lennon and the Beatles. And I'm like, it's like um 
But John Lennon, right, was also that guy who said, who got on stage. He was probably high out of his mind when he did this. But he 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 got into like a he he was wearing like this fur coat. And I think he was probably tripping on acid. And he got into like a box or a barrel, and it's like, well, if we all just did drugs and wore fur coats and got into a barrel, there would be no war. And that was the point he was trying to make. And it's like the man was clearly out of his mind. And when I listen to Imagine, I just think of this boring world where there's nothing to fight. There's no struggle. There's no glory. There's nothing. There's no great achievement to undertake. Right. It's like, I don't know. Like I grew up in the early like nineties, early two thousands. And I remember watching this episode of this cartoon called the fairly odd parents. Right. And there was an episode where the main character, Timmy wishes for the whole world to be made up of nothing but gray blobs, right? Everyone is a gray blob. So you can't tell anyone apart. Everyone's the same. And it was supposed to like remove all the prejudices and distinctions. And he ended up still getting picked on because his bullies were saying, well, I'm the grayest and the blobbiest. (laughs) That's like, it's like, you can't, you can't remove like, I'm sorry, it sucks, but you can't remove like, prejudice and chauvinism and bigotry out of the human condition. It sucks. Hierarchy. Yeah. Like there's always going to be someone who claims they're grayer and blobbier than you. And that's just the story of human history. Like, I mean, and I, I, I've made peace with that. I think a lot of people who are, you know, who really do believe in like the, the ascended consciousness aspects of like in, in spiral dynamics they really do feel like we're going to overcome. We're going to overcome all of these differences and become like transhuman. I don't know. Superman. Like, I don't know. I just don't believe in it. It just doesn't seem likely to me. Yeah. We just said on the last chat, how turquoise is bullshit. It is. No, turquoise is pure bullshit. Like it's like, it's going to stop at yellow. Like yellow is the best you're going to get. Like, like it is like, you know, I, I consider myself to be on like the, the yellow right, I guess. I'm trying to kind of bring all these different perspectives into like play. Yeah. But yeah, no, like there's no like turquoise is like the it 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 is literally saying like, well, oh, I'm grayer and blobbier than you. So I don't know. It it's frustrating. It really is. So a couple more things. Uh we're getting to two hours here, but I wanna oh, there's a couple of I know. Time flies. There's a couple more things I want to talk about. One is fascism. Okay. Oh, you just want me to go off the cuff? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, fascism is the big boogeyman, right? It's it's um dirty word. Yeah. But fascism I we have to we have to kind of contain fascism to a specific period in European history. Right? So, what was going on after the collapse of the last European monarchies and the introduction of liberal democracy to nations that never had liberal democracy before, right? What you saw was an influx of communist groups, of groups that were supported by the Soviet Union. I mean, look, there would have been no Nazis if it had not been for the Spartacist uprising in Emma Goldman and the Bavarian Soviet Socialist Republic. The 
the degree to which European fascist regimes were hard-handed in their extremism, I think adequately reflected the degree of which the, their left-wing counterparts were also um, embodied that same extremism, right? It's why, uh, you know, Italy, I mean, Italy was a fascist state. It was the original fascist state. But was it, you know, did it have the same kind of, what am, what am I trying to say? Was it as bloody as National Socialist Germany, right? And I think Nazi Germany had, was uniquely different from the other fascist states that you saw in perhaps Italy and Romania under the uh, Iron Guard, uh, Franco is Spain, Salazar is Portugal. All of the, the Southern or maybe the more Latin fascist regimes were certainly repressive. They were authoritarian, but were they as bloody? No. And I think that had a lot, a lot to do with um, the degree in which communism actually affected those particular states. Now, with regards to national socialism, I think it really, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's um, devastatingness was a reflection of Hitler's own megalomania. I really do think that the inner circle, the Nazi party were thinking of like, they had like a final society in vision and it was just going to be like a global Reich, right? In which like Germany and its allies dominated all of, uh, all of human history from that point onward. But my, my thoughts on fascism, if I'm being honest, I think it represented a authentic conditional response to communist subversion. Does that mean that I had to like every aspect of fascism that I think fascism was like this wonderful thing? No, like, but I think it was the necessary thing if I'm looking at it from like the perspective of the right, because what would have been the alternative in that regard? Would it have been liberal democracy? No, the Weimar Republic would have just descended into a communist rule. It would have just been East Germany a few decades before, right? And I think the same would have happened with all the other states that kind of uh, fell under fascism. But what makes fascism so interesting is it was... You know, it's easy to call like neo-fascists like reactionaries. And maybe the neo-fascists were our reactionaries. But I think that fascism was a modern response. I think it was wholly modern. It used the technology of modernism. And think about that. You, you see that in the ways in which uh, Nazi Germany was able to uh, implement the kind of pogroms that it did. It used the kind of, you know, tally tallying and counting systems to kind of organize human beings in the pure um sure but weren't it wasn't fascism trying to protect like traditionalism well that's the thing right like i think that was true in romania and spain i don't think that was italy i do well it mussolini was an atheist though and um I think that he made an alliance with the Catholic Church out of convenience, but I don't. I, I I don't know whether or not if the Italian fascists were traditionalists. 
maybe there were some of maybe a lot of them were Catholic. I don't doubt. Well, did you ever read the Doctrine of Fascism by Mussolini? I actually haven't, because I, I, you know, I was only the only point in which I was a self-avowed fascist was like in high school, where I was just angry at them, right? I kind of left that behind to get into like authentic traditionalism. But look, but here's the other thing is without fascism, I'm sorry, prior to fascism, you had the Italian futurist movement and many of the Italian futurists became card carrying fascists, many of them influential, especially you had like guys like Marinetti who wrote the futurist manifesto. So yeah, I feel like fascism was a, I don't see it as a mere reaction to kind of bring the world back to um, a kind of, you know, like a medievalism, right? It was taking the, it was, it was taking the kind of in-group preference that you see in, in blue and amber ways of thinking but also monopolizing on the technologies that the modern world had brought, which, I mean, I myself am very sympathetic about that. But do I honestly see, like, do I see, like, fascism's, like, will to power and trying to, like, create, like, these vast overseas empires? I mean, I think the age of, like, empires is over. I feel like what we're having is the age of tribalization. And empires may not be complementary to that uh, uh, vision of the future. I think we're seeing the death of the kind of, you know, great states, if you want to call it that. I don't even think, you know, this is the thing I've had with neo-fascists as well, is it's the same thing with the traditionalists. It's like they want to turn back the clock to 1933. It's like, I mean, maybe the traditionalists want to go back further than that, but the all the neo-fascists that I've talked to, they just think, okay, the conditions have to be right. Like they just have to have 1933 conditions, but it's like, well, that's not going to happen. Like we're living in a different period of history, but yeah, no, like I would say that fascism was a modernist response to the other great theories of modernity, which were liberalism or democratic republicanism and communism, which is something that Alexander Dugan also points out. And I guess you could say, well, what I want is the kind of fourth political theory. Maybe not like a fourth political theory in this in the Duganite sense, although I'm very much inclined towards, you know, Dugan. I'm sympathetic towards him, but I don't agree with him on necessarily everything. I think we are going to have to kind of um, come up with a new meta theory or meta narrative that does replace liberalism because the foundations or the presuppositions of on um, which liberalism is founded on no longer or or are or are increasingly making less and less sense as we kind of go further into the century and i don't think a return to fascism it would be beneficial or i think it would, i think it would be anachronistic i mean is the future like and don't get me wrong i do feel like there are going to be strong men there are going to be strong men who are going to, you know, be charismatic leaders in the future. I think that's going to happen. But are these people going to necessarily be fascistic? Maybe in a kind of outward sense. But is the age of like, we're going to have like a single party 
and it's we're all going to be united under a leader figure and we're all going to be like wearing like paramilitary uniforms no i don't see that i don't like and we, i mean look at it like look at some of the neo-fascist movements that managed to kind of overtake the alt-right and i'm thinking specifically of the traditionalist workers party and i have like i mean is is you know dressing up in all black and giving Roman salutes and quoting Hitler all the time. Like, is that the way forward? I don't think it is like that. That itself seems anachronistic. I mean, look, maybe if your whole, like if you're, if you're, if you're, if the alpha and the omega of your way of thinking is race, yes, fascism or national socialism is going to make a lot of sense to you. Right. But look, I'm not, I'm also like an Orthodox Christian, so I'm also kind of very skeptical of, you know, these kinds of, of race-based theories and trying to like achieve eugenic purity and we're just going to be like ancient Sparta, which was also a national socialist state, I want to emphasize, right? National socialism did not originate in 1930s Germany. It originated in ancient Sparta, right? We're not going to just toss babies over a side of a cliff because they have like club foot or something. Like, no, I'm not advocating that. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm generally opposed to um, anything that increases the possibility of human suffering. But I'm also, I also know how debased and violent and the, the potential for horror that human beings can kind of like undertake and i think there needs to be a a preparedness for that i think any sane person needs to understand like look the possibility for violence is always going to be there there's not going to be like we're not going to go full turquoise right like we're not going to go full turquoise like <sighs> green problems require amber solutions that's just the tragedy of the thing like green problems require amber solutions if they get bad enough, certainly. Yeah, so turquoise should respect that. I, I mean, you would think. I can't see a, a way around turquoise being like just totally authoritarian. I, I yeah, no, it's 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 fart sniffing. That's all it is. It's fart sniffing for people who think they're like um, holier than that. I don't even know. Like, yeah, fair maybe enough. The big brains, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The last topic I want to touch on is the Jews. Oh, okay. The JQ. The JQ. Okay, well, well, what do you, what about like um, Jewishness would you like me to like to say? Like, do you want my opinion on like the state of Israel or like just Jews in general or? Well, it's a good question. Are they a convenient scapegoat? I or... think so. Yeah. Um, look, like, look, I'm not going to lie. I have my own feelings about the influence of Judaism has had on Western culture, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to kind of like, look, I don't feel like Rabbi Shlomo at Shalom temple has like a direct <laughs> line to Benjamin Netanyahu. Like, I don't think that. Um, I mean, look, generally I am supportive of the Palestinian cause, but I think that has more to do with um, my, my religious leanings because I, I know people who are Palestinian Christians and I emphasize with their plight. Um, I will say this. I think the Israelis are a people who do possess blood and soil. I don't think, I think you should actually make a distinction between Jews 
and Israelis. I think. Right. I mean, the Israelis are. Oh, here. right. Yeah. So, so I'm not speaking of like the Israel versus Palestinian conflict. Oh, okay. Um, well. There's there's some uh, there's some on the right that like to make the argument well, yes. about I mean, the yeah. you know the Jewish group strategy uh, undermining you know national identities and so on and so forth. No, I mean yeah, that's that that's existed since like what like forever. Um, I mean, look, I think there's some truth to that. I think Jews do have a very powerful in group consciousness. But look, a lot of that has also been a response to living in Gentile societies. I mean, um, it's really like the, the only way I could I could see this is that Jews probably need their own ethnostates, probably independent from. I think they do. Like I think maybe they need their own ethnostates, independent of of what formerly used to be called Christendom. Like, unless maybe they uh, convert. And here's the thing, though, is I know people who are ethnically Ashkenazi, but have abandoned their Jewishness to become, like, Orthodox Christians. And once, like, it's really weird, actually. Like, I know a guy named Michael Whitcoff, right? He's an Orthodox writer. He, he or YouTuber, actually. He has a channel called... Um, brother augustine and the guy is an ashkenazi jew and he looks very much like one and he's also very anti-jewish like it's it's this weird thing i i can understand that yeah it's like nobody hates jews more than jews you know you see that a lot with jewish converts to christianity like you have a monk there's an orthodox monk named uh, brother nathaniel who will who is very he said some very uh I mean, very anti-Semitic things, despite being an ethnic Jew himself. But I think a lot of that has just become like a part of like the the Jew-Gentile debate, right? I have my own um, problems with Judaism because of what's written in the Talmud about Jesus, right? I mean, I think that's very un unacceptable, right? But like, I don't have like a hatred of Jews as persons. I mean, I wish they. What would do just they say about Jesus? I I honestly don't feel like I want to rep- like repeat that. Okay, I mean, that's fine. I mean, do you really? I mean, is it like how? You how... can Google. Okay. <laughs> Hold on, my phone just responded to me saying that. Um, yeah, it's it's very unpleasant. Um, gotcha. But no, like I mean, I hope and pray that all Jews accept. Uh, and I'm guessing you're of a Jewish background yourself. Okay, well, there you go. So I hope you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. But <laughs> I like the guy. <laughs> I actually feel a stronger affinity for Christianity than Judaism. Really? Really? Yeah. I, wonder, I mean, uh, uh, do you mind if I ask why? Is it because... It's a good question, man, because I was like... In high school, I was like a militant atheist. Okay. And I was surrounded by Christians. And, you know, I learned all of the, like, logical fallacies. And, you know, I could run circles around them and so on and so forth. And it was actually through reading Wilbur, uh, A Brief History of Everything, that I stopped being an atheist. 
Really? Okay. And then I started to like open myself up to the the merits of all the religions. And I started to read uh, Christianity and, you know, learn about Christianity. And I just, I liked uh, Christ's vibe. And there's a lot of the teachings that I enjoyed. Um, and maybe a lot of this has to do with my upbringing and, you know, disillusionment with what well, probably what turned me into an atheist, right? was disillusionment with, um, it was a lot of like pol temple politics and stuff like that. Was it a, were you a part of a very uh, conservative Jewish background? No. No, it was a uh, reform Judaism. Okay. So it was like real lukewarm Judaism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, my, I'll put it like this. Like I have more, my problems with Judaism, I think are more theological than they are like not soccer. -y. Like they're not like, I, I, they're, they're less racial, but more like religious. If I'm an anti-Semite, I'm probably as much as an anti-Semite as like some 19th century Russian peasant. Like, it's not, I'm certainly not an anti-Semite in the term, like in the sense of like a, a card-carrying Nazi party official. But yeah, it's like, I feel like, um, I mean, modern, or I'm sorry, modern or contemporary uh, conservative Judaism is, is essentially Phariseeism. It is legitimate Phariseeism. It is the, um, the, so after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Basically, you know, the Pharisees got together and they thought, okay, well, temple's gone. How do we be Jews now, right? And the birth of that was essentially what is now conservative Judaism or maybe Orthodox. I think it's Orthodox Judaism, my bad. Um, and yeah, like I just have like my theological disagreements with Judaism, I think far outweigh maybe any like weird ethnic I mean, obviously, like you and I can talk, and like I'm not frothing at the mouth, screaming horrible obscenities. Like it's not like like that. Like I try to see people like, okay, well, we didn't choose our grandparents. That's the thing. We didn't choose our grandparents. Like, um, but as a believing Christian and, and looking at what's in the Talmud, it's like, oh man, this is uh, this is not nice. So yeah, beef, yeah, yeah. But no, like, I mean, like, no, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be like an apologist for like, you know, the concentration camps or the pogroms or something. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess my answer to you would be accept Jesus. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> On that note, um, okay. Man, this was a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciated the like plurality of, you know, right-wing thought. And it really seems like you're embarking on a real integral style project of uh synthesizing different kinds of views and you know, sort of uh heading towards something something new and integral. I certainly hope so. Like, look, I don't want to be yeah, and you and seem really humble. Um, I really appreciate that quality. Well, thank you. That, that and willing to like well. question and throw out all your own views and you know presuppositions and all that. Well, look, I mean, dogmatism is the death of free thought. Like, 
that's I don't want to fall into I don't want to be a dogmatic because if if that's who I am, if I'm just repeating a prescribed set of talking points, then I mean that's the death of the intellect right there. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you're very welcome. We need more of that on the right and the left. <laughs> so is this where we part ways, maybe give a conclusion? Or... Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, well, that was my conclusion. Do you okay. have one? Um, I mean, it's been a good time. I really, really appreciate it, you uh, um, having me on. Um, and maybe in the future we can do this again sometime. Yeah, sure. I would love to. There's probably a lot more to discuss here. There was so much stuff that came up that I had questions about. So okay. for sure, I'm totally open to that. And um, next time I'm in Texas, I'll hit you up. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah, we can get together for a, uh, shoot, what's the beer? What's the Texas beer? Oh, Shiner or? Uh, uh, yeah, Shiner Buck. Okay, there we go. Okay. Well, All right, man. God bless. Namaste. <laughs> Shalom. All that stuff. All right. Peace be with you. And with your spirit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>